Welcome to episode 93 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Leek Freevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Rasha Hassanin, Vice President of Innovation and Product Excellence for Train Technologies. She also leads the Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces and is the focal point for train technologies on the topic of indoor environmental quality, bringing innovation and a customer-focused approach to this critical area of sustainability. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat. I'm here with Rasha Hassanin, VP of Innovation and Executive Director of the Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces at Train Technologies. Rasha, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. It's great to be here. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? I remember actually very vividly having spent the majority of my career in Silicon Valley and working for an application company. I remember at the time we were trying to position the company and and we're trying to get very, very close to having an impact on the world. So we would say, oh, you know, yeah, we only do the software on the back end, but yeah, all these companies use us and therefore we're making an impact on the world. And it kind of hit me like, what am I doing? Like, I really want to make an impact on the world. So I want to kind of do it a little bit more directly. And then it pretty much morphed into what kind of impact I want to make on the world. And I was really interested. I was living in California. I was super interested in the concept of climate change for sure, but the broader concept of sustainability and sustainable systems. And so I started to read about it and I realized that there was this kind of whole world around sustainability that I was pretty much oblivious to. And I was really, really interested in how to mitigate climate change. And so like most people do, not most people, but what like I do, Whenever I want to learn about something, I'm really goal-oriented, so I decided I needed to get a degree in it because, like, why learn about something if you're not going to go get a degree? So I started a doctorate in sustainability and was really interested in the energy industry. My brother is in oil and gas and was like, the energy industry is such a huge impact on climate why don't I start by looking at what's at the core there? So I started looking at sustainable processes for oil and gas and power, went to Texas A&M, knew I didn't want to just focus on the engineering side of it, but knew that there was a business component, which I had done in other degrees, but then added the policy component. At the time, there were a lot of countries that were experimenting with carbon taxes and carbon schemes. And I was like, this is a just a really interesting problem to go solve. So I started my degree and started learning about sustainability and climate change at the rest as they as they say is is history. I I joined General Electric supporting their oil and gas business, went to their power businesses, was very, very focused on the supply side of industry, like what was energy doing, how to get energy to be cleaner, more sustainable. I realized that a silver bullet is forever away, but incremental makes sense as well. And then when train technologies kind of came to me, the selling point of going to train technologies was like, yeah, you've been working on the supply side. How about working on the demand side? Let me tell you how energy efficiency impacts climate change. And then it was like another whole new world. So I had a few turning points where I was like, 
I really want to do something that impacts more closely people. And at the same time, leverages sort of my technical expertise. And that's kind of how I got where I am. When you get up in the morning, what drives you to tackle climate change mitigation? There's a lot. I have the drive to solve problems. So I have a hard time sleeping because my brain goes through kind of what's the next problem to go solve. And there are times of introspection where my brain kind of wanders. And then I start to think about bigger and bigger problems to solve. For me, what I get up and think about every day is what we do at Train Technologies has the potential to make such a big impact. And the problems that we're trying to solve are ostensibly solvable. And so now the question becomes, how do we tackle that in smaller and smaller bites? So a lot of it is just a drive to solve big challenges for the world. And part of it is you turn on the news and there's another thing that's resulting from climate change. And you're like, we're almost kind of running out of time. And so when you couple those things together, it delivers almost, it's not a burning platform, but more like a burning aspiration to do something. And that's kind of what really drives me to get up. And it's only because I feel like where I work now, we have such a large install base. We have such a large customer base. We have such an ability to make an impact that I want to get in there and help us do that and come up with the next sort of new thing that's going to bend the curve on climate change, not just incrementally make it better. When you meet people that don't believe the science behind climate change, they don't think it's real, how do you convince them otherwise? That is actually a really good question because I have, I have a hard time with people who don't believe in science, but I understand why it's really hard to get your arms around the science for climate change. So what I try and do more and more is educate people around this is hard and it's a hard problem to solve, but all of the indications scientifically from an experimental perspective are there. So just because you don't always have the science to explain every detail doesn't mean the outcome isn't there. It's just like when someone's sick with an unknown disease, they're getting sicker and sicker just because you don't have yet the mental fortitude to understand this disease or that doesn't mean they're not getting sick. It just means we haven't cut up to that yet. And a lot of the science behind climate change is there, but a lot of it, we're still learning and just making it clear to people that the symptoms are there, but we're still learning doesn't mean the science isn't there. And that usually gets people at least to the table. When I've met people that don't believe in climate change, it's because they are trying to make a 100% model, kind of like you talked Correct. about. Right. There's simple things you could look at. You can look at the fact that greenhouse gases allow right. light, but don't allow heat to come back out. That's like scientifically rock proven. Right. You can show we have more GHG gases. That's solid proven. And you can show that things are happening in the weather that are related to that heat right. in our water and on our land and to our ice. Those things can all be shown and proven. What we can't show 100% is exactly what's going to happen and how bad it's going to be or how quickly. But right. we know we're messing up the ecosystem of something awful. Exactly. It's those linkages that people have a hard time with and linking it to the future. And I, I tell them, nobody is a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But you can start to predict different outcomes. And a lot of times, again, I go back to things like faith, right? Just because 
you don't see something or don't have the hundred percent answer doesn't mean you don't believe in it. A lot of times when you don't get that continuity from A all the way to Z, people have a hard time believing. And then it becomes ambiguous, just like anything you have to believe in. And it is what it is. But one of the things I tell people a lot is very advanced science and technology at some point appears as though it's magic. It doesn't mean it's magic. It means it's science. But because you don't have the explanation behind it, again, it doesn't mean it's not science. It just means it feels different. And a lot of times you can get people to the table. Some people are not going to believe because they have to take that leap to what this is what the future is going to end up looking like. And it's hard for them to take that leap. But a lot of people, once you start to have those conversations, will actually be like, huh, right? I'll tell you, I had like the craziest experience. My 72-year-old aunt who lives in Egypt, I love her to death. She's my favorite aunt. I never thought I'd be having a climate change conversation with her, right? I mean, she's a finance person, worked at the ministry her whole life, retired. COVID hits, and they have some of these unprecedented storms in Cairo. And I'm on the phone with her, and I'm not trying to explain because she's my favorite aunt. We just talk about cool things. We don't talk about what I do for a living. And she starts to talk about climate change. And she's like, oh, this climate change they're talking about, that must be what's causing this. I'm like, yes. When my 72-year-old aunt, (laughs) who has nothing to do with science or engineering or climate, can start to talk about climate change, we're starting to get traction, even amongst people who aren't studying the science. And they're starting to believe. And I think that's what's needed, is people to start to take that leap of faith to say, what we're observing has these ramifications for the future, because nobody can actually predict the future. At least she observed things happening and understood enough to say, hey, this maps to climate change. Exactly. Exactly. What scares me about that is that it may take a lot of really bad things happening before enough people understand and get behind it and we get a movement that's strong enough to start really solving it. I agree. And that's why I think the responsibility falls on the scientists and people who are in the field to continue to drive forward against the grain and take big leaps like we do at Train Technologies, where it's like, look, it's not enough to just say, hey, we're going to try. The people who understand and the people who are at the forefront of the science need to continue to drive forward until we get more of a critical mass. It's more critical now, I think, than ever to do that. Can you talk more about what you do at Train Technologies and what Train Technologies does? Absolutely. You know, for your listeners that don't know, Train Technologies is sort of the oldest new company. I know Train Technologies was formed last, actually last year when the parent company Ingersoll Rand, which had an industrial and a climate business, sort of split. The industrial business did compressed air, did low-speed electric vehicles, low-speed gas vehicles, air power tools, et cetera. And the climate businesses did heating, ventilation, air conditioning, refrigeration, et cetera. And what's interesting is the industrial businesses all went to market under the branding Ingersoll Rand. So the name went with them and train technologies was formed of the climate businesses. And so that includes train, both commercial and residential HVAC systems. It includes American Standard and some of our other sub brands. It also includes our major refrigeration brands, which include Thermaking, Again, a couple of other sub-brands. So we do heating, ventilation, air conditioning for commercial buildings, residential buildings, and then transport refrigeration. So think about the super freezers that are transporting vaccines. We'll have, for example, a Thermo King 
unit to refrigerate the load. A lot of food, fresh food, frozen food, et cetera, will have some transport refrigeration on there. So that's kind of the scope of the business. And so the climate businesses then all form train technologies. I joined Ingersoll Rand a few years ago to do a few things. One is to help build capability around product management. But the other thing that I joined to do and that I continue to do with train is, is really innovation. So we have a pretty broad innovation culture within the company. Train Technologies and Ingersoll Rand was as well a lean organization. So we have standard work that really helps drive innovation across the businesses and sort of capability building and innovation is really part of what I do. But I also run a, a small incubator where we scan and screen technologies and innovation externally, bring that into the organization, incubate it, and then sort of scale it across our business. So that's the primary function of the team and the core of, of what I do. The Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces, which is kind of the second half of my role here, is really focused on indoor environmental quality and balancing that with sustainability. So, so Train Technologies at its heart has a purpose around sustainability. It's one of the things that really differentiates us in the, in the marketplace. We lead with sustainability. It is core to everything we do because we do believe that on the demand side of climate change, we have a, a huge role to play. But when COVID hit, one of the things that became very apparent was the market, which didn't have an appetite for indoor environments, was really very focused on energy efficiency and the impact on climate change started to become much more focused on healthy indoor environments, obviously with pathogen transmission indoors with COVID. And so we've had a practice around indoor air quality and lighting and all these other elements of indoor environments for a long time, sort of in pockets across the organization. And the Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces was really formed to galvanize what we do around indoor environmental quality, but to really fill a gap in the space to make sure that we don't do indoor environmental quality at the expense of sustainability and climate change. And so our most important thing that we do in the Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces is that we make sure that the technologies we're looking at have a positive impact on energy efficiency and sustainability of spaces as well. So we focus on indoor environments without compromising outdoor environments. And that's really what my role expanded to be. So at its heart, still very much innovation, but really, really focusing on how do we get the market to understand that when you spend more than 90% of your time indoors, we need to make sure those spaces are conducive to what you're trying to do, but we need to not do it at the expense of climate change. You and I are both home right now, not in our <laughs> office, having yes. this conversation so the pandemic must have really affected the lens with which you and Train Technology sees the world because people yeah. probably won't be 100% in the office anymore. There's going to be a lot more time spent at home. Yeah, so this sort of shift from office to home is very important. When you think about commercial spaces, there's a number of different types of commercial spaces. You think about schools, schools is commercial space. So learning and learning environments are really critical. You think about restaurants and hospitality, those are all commercial spaces. So as we start to think about the role of the commercial space, there are elements or industries that we think will continue to endure post-pandemic. And then there are other elements which I think will shift. And certainly the role of the commercial space and where that's going to land is one of the unknowns. So we do a lot of scenario planning. And what is clear is 
nobody knows what the role of the office is going to be. We're not sure if there's going to be a decrease in total requirement for real estate, for example, or if because people need to have more space, there are going to be fewer people in the same amount of space as there are going to be office sharing. So there's a lot there to unpack as it relates to the future of commercial real estate, especially office space. But what's also really interesting in balancing that out is the role of the home is shifting. And so we also serve the residential HVAC market. And remember, pre-pandemic, people went to work and went to school and time in the home was really focused on two things, primarily sleeping. And sometimes you cooked and had some entertainment. And so your home environment is actually built around helping you decompress and relax after work. The environment from that, whether that's an air quality or a temperature or a lighting environment is very different than if I'm at home wanting to be productive, than if I'm at home wanting to learn. And there's a ton of research out there that shows that actually different tones, different colors of light, different temperatures of light make a difference as it relates to learning. Acoustics, noise makes a difference as it compares to learning. And air quality makes a huge difference as it pertains to learning and productivity. In fact, the type of lighting, for example, that you want to have when you're trying to be very productive and do spreadsheets is very different than the type of lighting you want to have when you want to be creative. It's also different from the type of lighting that makes you the optimal sort of social person, right? And so these are the types of things that people are going to have to think about when they start to design multi-use spaces for the home. And now all of a sudden, a very simple home environment has turned into, I got to think about whether I'm being the most productive. You hear about that a lot when you think about ergonomics, for example, you've got this highly efficient ergonomic setup in the office. But I've seen, obviously, we're all on on Zoom or Teams or whatever. People are working on the floor or at a kitchen table. That's not how all the ergonomics people have have designed it. And so now all of a sudden, entire industries who are looking at designing homes to be the most relaxing and tranquil type environments are now looking at, okay, I need a room that's very productive, a room that's very relaxing, or even in the same room during the day, it's going to be very productive. And at night, it's got to be really tranquil and relaxing. And that's a whole different set of requirements. What we do know is the role of indoor spaces will shift. What we don't know is what they will shift to. And so that's part of what we're trying to do at the center is really trying to get our arms around where the market is going to go and how do we educate the market so that we make sure we have the best possible outcome for people and that people are educated enough to make those choices themselves. Can you talk about your prior background before Ingersoll Rand? Absolutely. I would say my background has been has been really varied. Let me start all the way back. I thought I was going to build airplanes for a living. Like that's how I started my career. I was like, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to build airplanes. And then I got talked down from aerospace engineering to mechanical engineering. I started working for a car company essentially and I was a validation engineer, it became actually very clear early on that I wasn't going to build anything because I really like customers a lot. And I really like the business aspects of of engineering. I really cared about technology. It was something I was, I was really excited about, but really, really focused on what technology could do. So when I left engineering and went into the product management and strategy and innovation side of the house, it was around the mid to late nineties. And it became sort of really clear to me that software and digital technologies were going to be really important. And so I spent about 12 years of my career in Silicon Valley 
learning and working in the digital space. And I worked for a lot of big names. Most were business to business. I didn't get so much on the consumer side, but as I was going through that and started developing my interest in sustainability, it also became clear that the biggest frontier for digital was really on the industrial side of the house. So that's when I started to become interested in sustainability. So I worked for General Motors when I first started with cars, moved to Hitachi, another very kind of large, but I worked on the digital side, worked at SAP, and then then shifted to the industrial side of the house with General Electric, where I worked in oil and gas. And I was super, super interested, actually, in making oil and gas processes more sustainable, really looking at natural gas and making shale more sustainable making a lot of these fuel sources a little bit more sustainable, and then moved over to the power side where I was working on gas turbines and steam turbines, et cetera. Mainly the majority of my work was really in digital. So really innovating from a digital perspective, some of these industries and starting to drive sustainable processes and more efficient processes using digital technologies. And so that was kind of my, my history. And because I had been working in digital and industrial, innovation was kind of, it wasn't in the job title, but it was like what I had to do every day. And so when Ingersoll Rand at the time and now Train Technologies asked me to join to work on innovation, I was really excited. One, I was excited to not be doing digital because I'd been doing it for like 20 years <laughs> to do something besides digital. But I also, I get to do digital, but I also get to do things that are very mechanical and thermodynamic in nature, which I hadn't used the word thermodynamic since I, I left GM. So I was really, I was really excited to be, to be back, back on the, on the mechanical side of the house as well. Can you talk about your biggest setbacks? I've had so many, I would say. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that from talking to you. <laughs> I don't believe you. It's all about resilience. Ironically enough, my biggest setback was really very personal in nature. When I graduated with my master's, and started in Silicon Valley, I was pretty ambitious. I really wanted to grow and get subsequent roles. And, and so my career trajectory was pretty vertical. Every couple of years, it was a new role. It was more responsibility. It was a bigger title. And then I got really sick. I had a blood clot. I was in the hospital for nine days. And I realized at the tender age of, I think I was about 30, that I wasn't invincible. <laughs> then maybe I should, I should slow down. That was a big one for me, mainly because it helped me put a lot of things into perspective. It helped me really examine where I felt I could make the most impact. It was around the time that I had started thinking about sustainability and climate change, but it was also, you know, I'd had enough exposure to know kind of what level in the organization would allow me to make the most impact without having to have the vertical career trajectory. And it allowed me to, to not necessarily slow down, but not chase things as much. And so that was a huge setback only because it made me stop and think differently. I would say the second big setback was also family related. My dad got diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then my parents kind of moved in with me. And again, it was one of those where I couldn't go live anywhere I wanted anymore. We had to kind of settle in and figure out how to make sure that he was taken care of. And so there were opportunities I didn't take in places in the world that I would have loved to live because I prioritize family. Now, having said that, I can't complain in the slightest in how it turned out. But at the time, they felt like real, real setbacks. They were choices, obviously, that I made at the time. 
but they were choices that were based on things that were happening kind of outside my control. And then of course there was a really funny setback, which was I applied for my doctorate and got rejected. I know the guys at Texas A&M are going to hate me for this. Got rejected first. (laughs) And then somebody had to go back in and say, we might want to, we might want to let this one in. And they did. So that was that I lost about six months there, but, um, but that was a really interesting one. I had applied to a program that they said that I guess that somebody didn't know existed and they were like, oh no, we're going to reject her. This program doesn't exist. And then my advisor who I really wanted to work with at the time was like, not only does it exist, but I'm on the board. So (laughs) so that was definitely a, a good setback, but I would say mainly the setbacks that I've had have been, you have a plan until you get punched in the face, a couple of face punches that made me kind of reevaluate where I was going. Yeah, but then you reflect and you end up being a better person and making better decisions afterward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the big thing is to make sure that when you do get one of these major sort of blows to your plan, that you're you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, what what does this mean and how do I emerge from this better on this trajectory than on the trajectory I was going on? And so hopefully we'll see. We'll see where I land, but so far so good. Well, I'll often tell people that if you like where you are today, then all the things that made you into that, good and bad, had a part that they played. Absolutely. And if you're going through a bad time, then there will be a good time and you'll look back on this bad time as being part of that. Absolutely. What successes are you most proud of? One of the things I'm most proud of is finishing my doctorate. I did my doctorate while I was working. I did it part-time and my mom is a PhD. She was working for most of my life. So she didn't get to come to any of my graduations, but ended up coming to my doctor and then tells everyone, no, no, I wasn't going to accept anything besides a doctorate. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that was definitely a great accomplishment for me because one, I really did take the time to learn things I really wanted to learn in that time frame, And I still use it every day. And so a lot of the things I learned about policy, a lot of things I learned about the interaction of management policy and sustainability inform my work kind of every day. And so that to me is one of my favorite accomplishments because it's it's one where a lot of learning and hard work culminates into, into something, in this particular case, a degree. But it's also one where with my mom as my role model, one that allowed me to follow in her footsteps a little bit, even though she was in, in a different field. So that was one. I think the other big accomplishment for me was really, and this is going to sound a little sappy, but sappy's good. And sappy's, I think, hopefully, sappy's okay. My parents worked in the Middle East. I mean, they didn't have a retirement plan. And when my my dad got sick at the tender age of seventy something, he was still working. You know, when my mom retired, my dad, when my dad got sick and, and retired. I was really able to take them in. I had kind of reached a point in my career and financially where it made sense. And so they live with me now. And just being able to look after them and give them a little bit back of what they gave to me as I was growing up and building my own career, to me, just means the world to me. So so just being able to provide for them in a way that makes them comfortable and preserves their dignity and allows them to really grow old in a way that that they prefer means a lot. And if I get to do nothing else in my life, I will be happy that I was able to do that for them. That was nice. And sappy, <laughs> nice sappy. and sappy. <laughs> yes. 
What's your vision of the future 20, 30, 40 years out? How's the world going to look? We talked about how we can't predict the future. Now you're asking me to predict the future. I am. I'm asking you exactly that. Yes. For me, I've always believed that there isn't a silver bullet. There's a number of things that have to come together and it's very complicated, but you can incrementally get better. You hear about things like Project Drawdown, different programs, different ways people have calculated what needs to happen in the world in order for climate change to sort of quote unquote reverse. What I would love to see personally happen is, you know, we know our system of government is not perfect. So when you have, and I'm going to go, not going to go political, I'm going to go very sort of technical policy. When you have a public good like the environment, where there is clearly an externality, to have that accounted for in a way that continues to preserve the climate, I think is going to be really critical. And making sure that as businesses, as people, that we recognize that the climate is as important a factor as some of the other things we value, like personal freedoms, like profitability, like all of those things. And and the fact is, with innovation, you can do both. You can do all of that. So you can be profitable and responsible. You can be profitable and impact climate change. And to the extent there's jobs created as a result of these markets, I mean, economically, we can get there. And so in 20, 30 years, I view a thriving economy around clean tech and climate preservation. Whether or not we're going to get to drawdown, I can't tell you. Whether or not we're going to get to a point where we can reverse climate change, I can't tell you. But I would love to see an economy as thriving on the clean tech climate preservation side as we have today on energy and food and some of the other critical industries that we have. And so for me, I think that is sort of my vision where there is, you know, we've got the beginnings of it. There's a lot of really great technologies that are being introduced, but innovation is what's going to get us to this sort of nexus of economic and climate and social kind of coming together in a way that makes sense. And and for me, that thriving climate preservation type economy is what I would love. i love to see hopefully sooner than 20 years, but definitely in 20 years. You mentioned some other industries saying that you want a climate to be like that, but climate is really integrated with them, with all of them. It has to be integrated. It's not really separate. It has to be. I agree. So I look at climate change in two ways. One is making what we do better. And so there's definitely a lot of climate integrated in existing industries and then new thriving industries around climate preservation. So technologies and marketplaces that don't exist today that are focused on preserving climate. Has the pandemic affected your opinion at all of the future and what it looks like? Yes, I think it's affected a number of us. For sure, in our space, we've seen the market for the past several years start to be very sensitized to things like energy efficiency and climate impact, perhaps at the expense of indoor air quality and indoor environmental quality. And what I think the pandemic has done has really added this variable. So in addition to focusing on things like energy efficiency and the sustainable built environment, We're seeing a lot more conversation around balancing indoor environments and outdoor environments. 
so I'll give you an example. So we have something called the, you know, we talk about the building envelope and we talk about buildings that are tighter to allow for more efficient HVAC usage. When you reduce, when you tighten up the building and you reduce the amount of outside air, because that consumes a lot of times energy, right? You have to condition that outside air. Yeah, you can recover some heat, but the more outside air you bring in, the more leakage you have in a building, the less efficient that building is, for example. So we've been very, very focused on making buildings very efficient. But when you do that, you have to recirculate air. And so that air isn't always the healthiest thing if you don't treat it properly. So when the pandemic hit, we were like, okay, outside air. And that's great. So we got to bring in a lot of outside air. You're going to filter that. You're going to condition it. But that left unchecked. If every building in every industry were to maximize the amount of outside air they brought in, it would be highly inefficient. We would blow our sustainability target. It just wouldn't be sustainable. So now we're starting to see the market balance a little bit to talk about this optimization between energy efficiency and air quality and looking at how do we get those tighter envelopes and maybe even reduce the amount of outside air, but making sure that that air we're recirculating is not only filtered, but also cleaned and providing the right the right indoor environment for what you're trying to do. And so that to me is what the shift that the pandemic has really shown us is in addition to the shifting role of spaces, which we've already talked about, this sort of sensitization to the indoor environment balanced with the outdoor environment. And that I think is really important because we do spend the majority of our time indoors and a lot of studies have shown health exposure to ambient or outdoor air pollution, for example, happens indoor as a result of non-mechanical ventilation, so uncontrolled ventilation, opening a window, for example, or opening a door. So that to me has been probably the biggest shift that we've seen. And that applies to all spaces. So whether that's a commercial space, when you go into a store, whether you go to your office, whether you go to a school, what does it take to have a safe school? Whether that relates to transit, we all know that for sustainable cities, mass transit is critical. So how do you get all those people into a bus or a subway car and make sure that that air and that space is as healthy as possible? And then translating that to the shifting home and making sure that the environments at home are what they need to be. So all of those spaces matter. They matter to sustainability. They matter to the sustainable built environment and they matter to climate change. But now making sure that indoor spaces are just as healthy matters as well. And I don't think it did as much pre-pandemic. If you had one piece of advice to give people that are listening about how they could help mitigate climate change, what is that? How about two pieces of advice? The first is learn. Absolutely understand the science and the impacts. There's a lot of information out there. Learn what can be done by individuals, by groups, et cetera. So make sure that the same way you learn about anything you're interested in, definitely learn about how things impact climate change and what are some of the things that you can do. The second is don't wait for the silver bullet because every little bit helps. So if you're thinking about installing solar, think about installing solar. Don't wait until solar gets better. There'll be more opportunity later. If you're thinking about going electric, go electric. Don't wait until electric gets perfect. The reality is 
none of these decisions that you're going to make are forever life decisions. And everything you can do now is going to make an impact. And then you'll get used to it. When I went electric, I didn't go to electric all in. I went hybrid first and I was going to go and plug in hybrid after and then electric. But I was like, you know what? I'm comfortable now. I can tell kind of what my range is. I'm going 100% electric for my commute, for example. And 90% of the time I use my electric vehicle. And 10% of the time, if I'm going on a long road trip, I use a, a standard, but now just hybrid, not 100% gasoline. So do it. Whatever it is you want to do, little, big, just start. And then you'll start to find yourself doing more. So I started composting last year, which I never thought I would do because I thought I had a black thumb. Apparently, if you spend a little bit of time in the yard because you're not going to work, you can have a green thumb. So I started composting yard waste. And then I was like, well, I have all this yard waste. Great. I'm going to start composting kitchen waste, right? So I found my little food recycling heating thingy. And now I do that. And it's amazing how much less food waste we have in the house as a result of just putting the bucket on the counter. It's like, okay, all our food waste has to fit in this bucket. It's like all of a sudden, oh no, I can eat it. (laughs) It's like, great, then eat it, (laughs) right? But it's amazing. Little things are going to make an impact. And so as you learn, don't wait until you can have a massive impact. Start with smaller impacts. And as you learn, get more and more sophisticated. That would be my big piece of advice to people is, is start small. And even if you are working in the industry, in the sustainability industry, don't wait till you have that product that's going to transform everything. Small incremental improvements, products and processes is how we're going to get closer and closer until there's disruptive technology out there that can help us. All of that matters. Everyone. That is unique advice and very good (laughs) advice. I like it very much. Is there anything else that you want to say? All I would say is I've had a a great time chatting with you, Leah. This is a really important topic and I appreciate the work that you're doing. So thanks for having me. And on that very nice note, (laughs) I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. You went back to school to learn about sustainability and that's a fact because you wanted to make a bigger world impact. Some people have trouble at night, so they count sheep. You count all your problems so you can't sleep. You learned about climate change affecting the world and our nation, so you applied your innovation to your burning aspiration. There's multiple complex models, so it's hard to have a reliance on people believing because they can't get their arms wrapped around the science. When it comes to understanding the problem, some people just can't, but you were very happy when it didn't apply to your favorite aunt. It's the newest, oldest company. You did explain how Ingersoll ran, spun off train. Predicting the future is hard, something no one knows, so you had to examine multiple scenarios. You talked about your setbacks that slowed up some of your brilliance, saying you were lucky because you have great resilience. Your mom said, hey, I was just waiting to see. Just like me, you're getting a doctorate degree. Yes, it was sappy, but you were very glad in retirement to provide a great environment for your mom and dad. You say to start slow. Folks don't have to make haste. First, it was a hybrid, now electric, and food and yard waste. You (laughs) gave us lots to think about. Tidbits to Nasha. I loved having you on the show. Thank you, Rasha. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. After talking with Rasha, I've been doing a lot more thinking about how to make my house provide me with both relaxation, my home, 
and efficiency, my office, and how to be sustainable in both. I have a lot of ideas. I just need to get to it. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, please visit my website at crevatteenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Rasha suggested that we start small, just to start, instead of waiting for the climate change silver bullet. Although I believe we need a sense of urgency, each person needs to get there in their own way. And starting with a hybrid vehicle and moving to an EV is a great way to help mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.